This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Analyzing Anfield. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by a self-distancing version of David Hughes about 30 miles away. Uh, how are you getting on, mate? Um, as good as can be under the circumstances. I'm interested to see how, uh, how we're going to do with this show today. But yeah, not bad. How are you, mate? Because you had a cold oh, last yeah. week, didn't you? It wasn't the virus, was it? No, I can reassure everyone that it was the cold. <laughs> it, was, um, it was definitely not the corona, but hopefully I'll avoid that for the time being. You haven't just jinxed me there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this feels a bit weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but this this is our means of getting content to people that want it. Um, so obviously there's no football as well, so it's a little bit difficult. Mm. So this week we've t- we went down the Q and A views. Um, we put it out there for listeners to send in questions um, via Google Forms. And I can tell you now that the two most popular names, this is a stat show, two most popular first names that we got in, James and Paul. So for those who want to know that, there for you. But yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll get straight into the, the questions and answers. A lot, a, lot, a lot has changed in the space of a week. Uh, I think this time last week, we were previewing the derby, weren't we? Yeah, we were, yeah. Uh, um, although we did have an uh, idea that it may... It may not happen. Um, almost a disclaimer then turned out to be true, but yeah, definitely a lot. A lot has changed in the last seven days. Yeah, seven days later, that feels absolutely oh, insane to go ahead with something like that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, do you, do you want to go first, or because we've yeah. we'll a question each for those that those that aren't aware? Yeah. The the only thing is I haven't got names. I don't suppose you have them, do you? I've, I've no. Them, no. No. So. Don't, don't. I, yeah. And yeah, I was gonna say apologies for people who've obviously put a question in and we haven't we haven't been able to give you credit, but I mean you'll know it's yours. <laughs> um yeah, the first question I got was uh, which left back should LFC be looking at as cover for uh, Robinson this summer? Uh, could they take advantage of the possible Norwich relegation and go for Jamal Lewis? Or is there uh, an academy alternative to Nico Williams, who uh, who obviously is a right back? Um I'd say in terms of academy prospects, we can't really forget Adam Lewis. Um, I think he's had some troubles with injuries this season because I know I, I, I watch a fair bit of the under-23s and I haven't seen him play a lot, but I've seen him um, in and around the sidelines. So I think he has struggled with injuries uh, at times. But I know he played a fair bit last season. Uh, I think he played 29 times. He scored once, assisted six, which isn't bad. But he's obviously a left back. He's versatile. He can go to left wing. Uh, sometimes even central midfield. Fantastic final ball delivery. Um, in fact, he's, a, he's an all-around good pass to the ball. Uh, a local lad as well. Been at the club since he was six. So you know he's he, he kind of knows what it feels like to play for Liverpool. And I, I think he's still one to keep an eye on. Um, potentially breaking into that Liverpool squad. Maybe the first team, but the squad at least next year. Uh, back onto the Jamal Lewis point. Uh, he is an option, definitely. I actually remember you saying this, Josh, that you were a little bit disappointed with him this season. Um, I didn't make that. No, up. no, no. I, I said I was disappointed. Oh, you, Max Aaron's. Max Aaron's on the opposite. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, the reason I gave you this question was actually because I feel as though I've answered this 
a few times this season. I've mentioned Jamal Lewis a few times, so I didn't want to yeah. beat myself, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, look, it, it, if you look at his numbers in isolation, his it, it, defensive numbers aren't bad, but um, creative numbers aren't, aren't amazing. But, you know, let's not forget he's playing for Norwich, who are maybe, what, the second or worst side in the division. Uh, I, think, I think he's got an expected assist per 90 of 0.04, which doesn't look great. He got one assist, but... You know, Robertson in his last season, um, a hole before he signed for Liverpool, had an expected to pay a 90 of 0.06. So, you know, it's it's it, you've got to try and uh, take in all the elements. And, and I still think he could be a decent sign for Liverpool. Um, you know, maybe as an, another name in there, I think Robert Scott for Hoffenheim, he could be an option. Um, signed from Copenhagen last season. He was originally a winger, but he's been getting used as like a left wing back for them. Uh, defensive game looks good, certainly approved anyway, uh, but really strong in attack. He has one of the highest expected assists per 90 in Europe. I think average out around 0.25 per 90. Um, you know what? We know what Hoffenheim are like. Um, uh, to I, wing, what? Sorry, I was going to say, I, I didn't know he was being used as a left wing back. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he scored a lot last season. Yeah, the He's come out and said, obviously, he, he kind of misses playing in a more offensive role previously in the season, but he's performing so well there that it, it could be a position that he kind of makes his own. And we know that wing-back positions have become such, you know, an attack-focused role over the past few years that there's every chance he could stay there. And if he keeps performing at that level in that position, then he could be option for Liverpool. Yeah, he's left us as well. I'll just check that. Mm. It's an assistant one, I'll have to look into that one. Yeah. Uh, right. So, my question, my answer's not going to be anywhere near as long as that. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my first question is, I think, I think quite, a, quite a generic one. Mm. Um, so, do you think Curtis Jones can replace Adam Lallana in the Liverpool squad next season? Uh, for me, comfortable yes on that. Um, I think we've got a kid who's, who's got that quality. And a kid who's potentially good enough to to step up and you know save you a couple of million down the line. It's important when you're building a squad to um, basically keep a space for him, keep a slot open for him. We tried to do that with Brewster, did that specifically with Saint Alexander Arnold. Hence why we haven't signed a right back in. I can't even remember the last the right last right back we actually moved moved to sign. Mm. Um, so this is what you've got to do and. I think considering Alana's leaving, that's about hundred grand a week off the wage bill. Um, bring Curtis Jones through, and I don't think he'd be a, a sensible player by any means. Um, but just a player get roughly the same amount of minutes that Alana's got this season. Um, in situations when it's it's maybe safe for him to perform, and it's not that big of a deal if he has an off day, you know. Newcastle home and things like that, maybe featuring a little bit more in the league next season as opposed to just the League Cup. Um, but I think he's, I think he's still got quite a bit to learn. But he's got a lot of positives on his side. We've spoken about that on this on this podcast before. Um, I think he needs to become a little bit, and I think he will become a little bit more disciplined in his decisions. I think he's naturally a little bit more attacking now. Um, I think he's inclined to take risks and. Traditionally, over the past few years, Klopp's centre midfielders have been a little bit more reserved in doing that. And I think Jones will follow the route of a Wijnaldum, Henderson, Milner sort of vibe where 
he's kind of a a jack of all trades central midfield who largely leaves the attack and stuff to the players who have got world class quality. So yeah, I, I wouldn't rule that out at all. I don't think we'll um, be surprised if he signs central midfielder in the summer. Mm. Um, and as you say, that leaves that leaves a void for 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 Jones to um, step up and play to the line here. Yeah, I think Jones, Jones is going to be a good. I think he's one who in the academy could definitely um, <clears throat> make the step up, even in this Liverpool side. Um, someone's asked re- regarding XG, uh, expect the goals, obviously. Let's say Salah and Matip take a shot from the edge of the box. Will XG, um, will XG account for that shot to be any different depending on who takes the shot? Or is it the same XG for whoever shoots? Obviously, they then make a point saying Salah will probably score more frequently in that position than Matter. Well, I'd hope so, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, in short, no, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't consider the player hitting the shot. Um, I guess if we're trying to really simplify it, just view XG as what um, the output of an average player. So if a player is performing in line with their XG, then I'd probably see that as them performing at a decent but unremarkable level. Um, and then that goes on to explain why elite players tend to overperform in terms of their XG on a consistent basis. Yeah, it's a pretty simple one, that one. Mm. Um, so this was quite a long-winded question. Uh, well, I've made a long-winded question, sorry, because I think I think it involves about three questions, this, but they're all along the same lines. So if you if you sent in, I'm not going to read it out because it's a big long paragraph. Three questions have made into one, but if you've sent in any questions to do with Liverpool developing tactically next season, um, will teams begin to understand what we do, and w- will Liverpool have to adapt um, a chain formation? Um, yeah, that sort of stuff that moulded that question into one really. Um, so the person, one of the questions said. You know that Klopp's been developing a lot at Liverpool tactically. That's true, but I think that's been as a result of the players Klopp's had at his disposal. Um, we haven't always had, you know, elite offensive fullbacks. We haven't ho- always had a front three like that. We haven't always had centre backs who can cope with with such isolation. Um, I think we've now reached a point whereby I would expect Klopp to want to almost keep. Um, the the tactical makeup of what we've got at the minute, with a disciplined central midfield, attacking fullbacks, and a front three that are very unpredictable and can do it without the ball and with the ball. Um, so I think we want to keep that, but I think that development has coincided with the players Klopp's got. Um, obviously Alexander Arnold's rise, Robertson's rise. The fact that Henderson's a little bit disciplined, Fabinho's quite disciplined and, and all that sort of stuff. So ultimately your tactics are going to suit your players. So possibly there would be a change if Liverpool signed a player who was basically good enough to challenge that. Um say for example Timo Werner. In initially in the in the months after signing Werner, if you sign him, I'd expect you know, not, not, not much to change, but if Werner reaches a point whereby he's knocking on the door and he's simply too good enough to leave out, then I'd expect Klopp to almost be forced into a change and I'd expect maybe 
I don't know if this would be a permanent switch or a match-to-match switch, but I'd expect one midfielder to come out at the expense of um, Timo Werner coming in. So you'd, 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 compens- you'd compensate that. So say, for example, if you kept Fabinho and Henderson as a midfield pairing and brought in Werner for, for Wijnaldum maybe, and that would leave space to, to maybe go towards a 4 4 2 formation or a 4 2 3 1 formation. But ultimately, I think it's any signature like that and any development moving forward, it's just got to be with with the players in mind that you've got, how their qualities and, and things like that, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm just catching up to where I'm up to. Oh, yeah. So we've had a uh, we had a question on <coughs> on Ben White, um, who's obviously been linked with Liverpool recently. He's currently, I mean, unless something's happened, but I don't think it has. He's currently on loan at Leeds. This was a sp- specific request for yourself this one, Will. Yeah, well, I'd, I mean, I wasn't sure if you put the I know Dave has watched them bit on this, but um, yeah, well, that was past the question. Yeah. So it, thanks for whoever actually reads me stuff. Um, but yeah, White's a strange one because I looked at him in the summer. Um, I've only really occasionally looked at him uh, throughout the season, but just to give a bit of context, you know. Um, He's a versatile defender who can kind of play central defender as a wing-back. Um, he looks to have a really good football IQ. Um, he's really good in duels on the floor. He's a he's a good passer of the ball. Helps that he's playing for Leeds as well. He obviously like, like to get the ball down and play. Um, one thing I would say is he seems a little bit average in the air. He's six foot, but he's, he's only got an aerial duel success rate so far this season. Had a little look earlier of around 52 53%, um, which is fairly low. And if you if you think about it, Liverpool can can often face high balls um because of the way they play. So you kind of want aerial dominance um defenders in there. You know, you think of Van Dyke and you think of Gomez. It's that's something that he'll need to work on. But let's not forget he's I mean, how old is he? He's 22. Now there's still plenty to learn. In terms of making the move. Now, um, I don't know. It's interesting because obviously I assume unless something's changed, he's going to be going back to Brighton in the summer whenever. I'd actually be quite surprised if, if Brighton just happily let him go, considering he's a, an English centre-back homegrown and the impact of what Brexit may be and things. Yeah, well, funny enough, I, I was about to touch on the, he, he, when he made that move to Leeds uh, on loan, I'm pretty sure he signed a contract extension as well. So on the points you've just touched on there, Josh, taking them into consideration as well, you're going to have to pay a lot of money for them to get them, you know, um, with his age, what he's worth to Brighton, being English, etc. Um, so that's something you got to consider. Me personally, I'd be inclined to let him have another deal or two with Brighton. You know, we people who listen to the show know that we spoke quite well about Brighton and how they're trying to do things and how they're playing their game. Okay, they've struggled a little bit this season uh, for results, but the performances have been there to the side that like to get the ball down and play. I think it would be good to see him um, almost develop in that environment environment before making the move to, to Liverpool. Um. Yeah, I, I think so. If he did come as soon as this year, then it'd probably take a a bedding period. 
if you were to put a a value valuation on his head that you um would maybe put you off, how high would you be willing to go with him? I wouldn't right now as he is, and I understand the potentials there. I and this is the sticking point actually because I don't think Brighton would let him go for this. I wouldn't like to pay over thirty million. Yeah, it's the figure I had in my head actually. Yeah. Um. Anything above that, I think, is just too high, and there's too many, um, too many variables that could impact it. Um, but and below that, then you know, fair game, it could, it could go on to be a good move. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting if we could maybe somehow generate around 15 million, 10 million for Dejan Lovren, and mm. then put a little bit, put a little bit more towards getting White in as his replacement because I think Lovren's got one year left um, after the upcoming summer. Yeah. So you know, remains to be seen. Uh, next question. This was a good question. This is my kind of question. This. Uh, so what part of the Liverpool analytics team makes it so ahead of the cave? So it's, I think for me, it's it's not so much what what Liverpool are doing. It's more a case of um, how widely accepted data is inside Liverpool. And how integrated data is into Liverpool's decision making. Um, it seems valued throughout the club, which isn't always the case. John Henry's obviously got a background in baseball. Obviously, the very analytics focused over in American American sports and things like that. I think there's a famous thing where John Henry offered Billy Bean, the man behind Moneyball, I think he offered him something like it was either a twelve million pound contract or twelve million million a year or something like that. To, to make the move to his team and I think being famously turned it down. Um, I'm, sure he, I'm, sure, I'm sure he doesn't regret it. But I think he stayed as a um, an advisor, I think, or something like that. I think he stayed in college. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. He was with Oakland, wasn't he? I'm right to say. Yeah, yeah, the Oakland days. Yeah. yeah um, go on, sorry, anyway, mate. Yeah, so I just think Liverpool... You know, they've got the whole data set up and things like that. But I think the crucial aspect is that everyone in the club listens to it. You've got a sporting director that widely appreciates it and listens to it. And he's got a background and he was, he was a data analyst at Portsmouth, I think, and Spurs as well. And, and I think I'm right in saying that. Um, but that has allowed Liverpool to basically um, integrate data into all aspects of the club. To an extent that I think it's now influencing how we perform on the actual pitch. You know, you think of little things about Liverpool's game, like say, for example, the way the fullbacks switch to play to one another, the way Liverpool constantly hit that ball over the top. Um, Van Dijk usually hits it to Mane, for example. The simple things, but I think they will be products of how Liverpool interpret values on the pitch and things like that. Um, I think Liverpool will, will incorporate that sort of thing into how we scout opponents, um, prepare for opposition matches and things like that. Um, and I also think it obviously plays a massive part into Liverpool's scouting. I think rather than scouting for players solely using goals scored, assists, expected goals and things like that, I think Liverpool, in fact, I know Liverpool go a little bit deeper than that. And Liverpool have come up with a framework that basically values every single touch of every single player in a given match in reference to how each action 
relate to the probability of a goal being scored. So it sounds complicated, but say for example, an Abby Cater, who was doing an awful lot with and without the ball, tackles, interceptions, through balls, you know, all that sort of stuff. He obviously, to me, showed up as a very influential player in terms of just adding a threat to his team. Liverpool moved to sign him. Um, so, yeah, just <laughs> Liverpool obviously very, very ahead in terms of, you know, research and development and stuff like that and stats and, and data and things. But, for example, so Arsenal, I think Arsene Wenger, when Arsene Wenger was in charge, I think he, he bought out a stats company, didn't he? Mm, uh, yeah, yeah. 2012. Well, they, well, again, they call something basic like stats, something, aren't they? Yeah, stats, something, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. I get it. Uh, yeah. But the, the crucial thing is, though, despite Arsenal having that knowledge, it's never really been integrated thoroughly. And the stat, reason that DNA, stat DNA, yeah, that was it. Yeah. But the reason, and the reason it hasn't really been integrated thoroughly, is that from the top down. He isn't an aligned perspective on how useful his stuff is. They've now got a fella in charge called Raul Sanlehi, I think, is running the is running the show now. And I think he's just basically more agent focused than he is, you know, numbers and stuff like that. And yeah, you'll always yeah. have that conflict between different departments. So Liverpool, what Liverpool have done really well is integrate data throughout Everton. Um and I think that's that's something that a lot of clubs will have to catch up with, specifically Manchester United, who have only recently Invested in the data team, by all accounts. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I agree with all that. You know, the the thing is, I, I mean, I do still think Liverpool are ahead of the curve in, in some senses, but that's, you know, most sides in the Premier League and across Europe will have analytical teams. But I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's how Liverpool is so open um, to listening to them, and you know how how we we spoke before, haven't we, about how Klopp is willing to delegate where maybe others aren't, and he's he's willing to delegate this work to people who can obviously then turn it into positives for the team. So um, yeah, I can only really echo what you said. I totally agree. I think I think I, I read or listened recently to a podcast, and it said it said something like if if United had a a data recruitment sort of department around the time Wan Bissaka was signed maybe he wouldn't have actually been signed. Um, and I think that's that, that's where the analytics can help if it's thoroughly integrated. You'll find that if you use it properly, at least you'll make fewer bad decisions, basically, in the transfer market. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, when was the last time Liverpool signed a flop? Maybe Carrius. Mm. But that was, that, and that was for £6 million. So you, you tend to eradicate your your errors and your mistakes if you integrate data thoroughly because it provides provides insights at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we've got a, a, an XG question again. It's uh, Liverpool are overperforming in terms of expected goals or unexpected goals again. If you had to come up with uh, one, with it, if you had to come down on one side, is this a good sign on balance? Uh, Presumably, the extent to which it suggests the performances might not be sustainable, uh, but there's also indicators such as world-class keepers and clinical finishers. Um, so my view on XG fluctuates a little bit. I think it's a really good analytical tool, but, but I do definitely think it's it's flawed in part, or not flawed, sorry, it's got limitations. 
Um, so I'll try and summarize where I'm at with it now. Um, in terms of elite sides, overperformance tends to be down to their abilities. Obviously, we'll use Liverpool as the example. They've overperformed in both departments across last season and this season. Um, obviously, a big one this year has been their overperformance in terms of XGA, um, so expect the goals against. Last I checked, I'm pretty sure they're overperforming by around eight goals, roughly. Um, but City, on the other hand, are underperforming by three goals. Um, so Liverpool conceding a lot less than the than the should be. City uh, conceding a little bit more than they should be. Now, previously, people kind of put that down to luck. Um, but I tried to delve into that a little bit this week and actually led to a piece that I did that was trying to illustrate things like um, defensive pressure because a lot of standard XG models don't really um, account for this. There's, you know, there's post-shot XG, which gives a better overview of, uh, of of chances, but we won't go into that now. But yeah, a lot of XG models kind of focus more on um, the assist type and locations of the shots, etc. Um, so yeah, what I found was basically Liverpool attending to you know, put a lot of pressure on attackers in and around the goal. Um, so XG may have these locations as um, as high-scoring possibilities, but in reality, Liverpool are putting a lot of pressure on these players, um, which is forcing them into errors or mistakes. Um, City aren't, and that's where maybe we're seeing the difference in, in terms of XG. So, in short, um, I think a lot of it is down to performance, but I would say that's more the case in the top teams than the teams lower down in the league. And the best example we've seen this year is Newcastle, um, who ironically, Joshua Backers up, have been uh, used as like a case study in the past for XG and um, kind of the positives of it. But, you know, Newcastle, according to expected goals for and against, should be rock bottom of the table. The, the performances haven't been great this year, but they've, they just seem to have a lot of luck. There's no other other way to really really sell it. They've um, they've kind of snuck one nils or they've scored really late on or they've been dominated and kind of just found a way to grind out results. Um, I expect them to kind of level out more with their XG next season if they continue to perform at these levels. So, in short, I think in the elite sides, over overperformance tends to just be part and parcel and it's, it, it's not really anything to worry about it's normally down to their own abilities but maybe sides further down the table if there's a big over performance there then i'd expect to see that level out again uh over a more prolonged period yeah yeah totally agree with all that yeah on newcastle <laughs> yeah yeah like newcastle you know newcastle have been bad this year yeah, honestly according to the performance numbers right they look mm. absolutely shocking yeah, he looked terrible. Um, I think they've benefited from scoring a fair few set pieces, which the numbers maybe maybe wouldn't pick up on. Because if you if you're getting a header from a corner, maybe it's not getting that much of an XG value sort of thing. But yeah, if they're making yeah. use of it and, and they're winning the match one 0 or something, you know, fair play. But for me, there's only so long you can perform like that before I just I don't know. I know in mid mid February Newcastle had scored only twelve and play goals all season. Um, I think fifty percent of their goals had come from what you've just said there set pieces. So, 
you know, it, as I said, it's great if you can use set pieces to the, the advantage. We talk about Liverpool doing it all the time, but you've just touched on the sustainability. It's it, it, it's difficult to kind of guarantee that week in, week out. Yeah. So, next question, mine was on um, Kai Havertz. So, thoughts on Kai Havertz and do his numbers to fight the talks of 100 million? Personally, I don't see it myself. So, on that point, I am inclined to agree, I think, uh, because his numbers don't don't really justify a hundred million pound player. Hundred million players, I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Like it's mm. it's a player with absolute output. It's a player who's going to make a difference. It's a I think Liverpool have used the phrase a transformational player who's mm. going to basically you know transform your your fortunes completely single handedly. So he's not he's not that. But he is quite he is quite unique, and I think with a player like this, you have to look a little bit beyond the numbers, because I think if Liverpool are truly interested in this player, I think he would be as a long term heir to Firmino. Um, Firmino is obviously a very odd type of player in terms of he's a centre forward, but he's a centre midfielder as well. Mm. Um, he's got brilliant touch, first touches, superb Firmino. Complete 360 awareness of what's going on around him. Um, and he's very unselfish. And he links to play very, very smoothly and stuff like that. Very aggressive. Um, he's comfortable dropping back into midfield despite being a striker. Versatile and stuff like that. And Kai Havertz ticks virtually all of those boxes, really. Um Kai Havertz's spatial awareness of, of what's going on around him. Swip, the swivel under his head is very, very good. Uh, he's six foot two. Um, currently playing in central midfield, I think. Or he's certainly played a lot of minutes in central midfield. I think Leverkusen are currently coached by Peter Bowes, aren't he? Yeah. Um, very, very tactically fluid side. So he's probably played all over the place. Um, he's 12th in the Bundesliga this season for shots assisted per 90. That's based on those with more than 1,500 minutes. It's not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at this point, it's worth noting that he's, he's 20 years old. So by the time he's maybe, well, by the time he's 23, Firmino will be, I think, 30. I think I'm right in saying 30. So I don't think he's the type of player that would, would absolutely go mad on in terms of spending loads and loads of money on him. But I do think we'd be interested in him as... If, if we want to keep this tactical dynamic, I suppose, mm-hmm. as another uh, Firmino type, because those types mm-hmm. of unicorns really aren't they? I mean, you don't, you don't see many of those. No. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've just realised that I'll, I'll have to just answer this quick question quickly because I initially missed it. Um, but somebody's went up the way to say, hey, fellas, love the podcast at the start, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to then skip this person. Um, so I'll just answer it really quickly. But um, my question is, could you ever envisage a game in the future where Minamino and Firmino play together on the pitch? If so, who against and why? Um, completely understand that Klopp Pop probably sees them as a similar type of player. But I personally, this is the person asking the question, would, would like to see them causing havoc, um, but also being included with Mane and Salah. Um, you know how would that work formation wise and potential opposition? Um, it, it's always difficult because 
I think Liverpool's 4-3-3 is so successful at the moment that you, many teams haven't really got an answer for it. So I'm always reluctant to kind of talk about veering away from it. Um, but yeah, in short, it, you know, it, it potentially work. Say if you do go with a, a 4-2-3-1 formation um, and you could put out to the current side, you put Mane on the left, maybe Firmino as number 10, Minamino on the right, obviously he's... He's right-footed, um, Salah up top. But the beauty of that kind of um, that group of four is they're so interchangeable and the you know they're so fluid that I think that would be really difficult for defenders to track. Um, in terms of opposition, you're probably looking for characteristics of a side who will really you know maybe sit deep, not not offer much in terms of counter-attacking. Um, you know, you think of like, I don't know, your, your Villas, your Bournemouth, those type of players, uh, those type of teams, maybe at home as well. Just games where you're probably going to, uh, you know, territorial dominance, ball dominance. Um, and it might be about just trying to pull these these teams out of shape a little bit with, with good movements, bit of skill on the ball. Um, you probably want to avoid someone like a Wolves because even though they sit, sit the... Um, you know, the fast on the counter, aren't they? Um, but yeah, I'd say it could potentially work someday. Yeah. I mean, I, I do personally see him very, very, very similar to Firmino. But I would agree in terms of maybe deploying them as number 10, 43, one, something like that. Yeah. But anyone who's watching on YouTube, you're going to see me come off camera now, but my dog's eating the pen. So um, <laughs> I, could, I could avoid not having to leave the apartment when we're meant to be self-isolating to take him to the air vet. So... <laughs> So I'll ta- I'll tackle my question while you're sorting out his thoughts. Yeah, mate. <laughs> so, what is your opinion on Matt Lowton of Burnley as a low cost slash wage backup to Trent? He's been showing up well on the data charts I've seen for this last season. Keep up the great work. So, thanks for the question, mate. And I would agree. Um, I've produced a few of these data charts. I'm assuming like you're referring to. And Matt Lowe does seem to show really, really well. Uh, surprisingly, he seems to be Burnley's version of Trent to an extent. Um, but the problem is, in terms of getting him in as a bat or as a an alternative option to Trent, he's, he's 30 years old, so um, although he shows up well, he's, he's simply too old for me to, to, be, to be actually signed and chased in that, in that regard but just a little bit of an insight into his numbers so I looked at fallbacks I think it was minimum of a thousand minutes played in the Premier League this season and since Alexander-Arnold is top for three passes completed per 90 Lowton is second then Jamal Lewis and then Ender Stevens. Um, and then if you go on long passes as well, he's fifth for fullbacks for long passes per 90. And uh, if you go on shots assisted or expected assists, uh, and expected assists, sorry, he's a little bit further down for that. But I think it's interesting to see how he's using the ball. He's clearly he's clearly an alternative fullback that maybe you wouldn't have picked up on if you didn't have the use of the numbers there. Um, so it's an interesting one to keep an eye out on for, but... The disappointing thing is he's 30 years old, so mm. I think maybe you can look beyond him as a sign. Yeah, do you think he benefited all playing for that Burnley side? Well, 
I'm not sure. I mean, I suppose a lot of his long passes would stem from that. From yeah, Burnley yeah. basically hitting long, but he's, he's hitting quite a few three balls as well, so I don't know. Mm. I just because they're don't... quite, I suppose they're quite direct in the play, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I suppose, but I don't, I think I'm right in saying that I don't think the opposite fullback on the opposite flank is do, is doing doing it to that extent. I'm not, I'm not sure. No, no, you probably are right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do you know. I, I I I agree. By the way, I think he is he is interesting. Definitely one that kind of drifted on the radar for most, as you said. Unless you've got the numbers there. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. So, um, with what's going on right now, can you can you see us selling a player, i.e., one of the front three, to fund further signings? Um. Reason the person asks is the they they can't see the Anfield Road expansion expansion sorry going ahead anytime soon and revenues will take a big hit. It, it, I mean that's difficult for for me and probably the same for you to answer because we're not obviously experts on the financial side of things. Um, my knowledge is fairly limited, but um, look for an, an outsider looking in, uh, Liverpool look like a really really well run club financially. That uh, that the owners have never really been the type to kind of come in and just inject large sums of money, meaning that uh, the club will then be dependent on on that owner. Um, it seems like they've come in and wanted to make Liverpool a, a functioning business almost, where um, they're, they're reliant on their own revenues. That looks to be happening. Um, have you rem- remember? There's actually a little bit of unrest starting to show, maybe eighteen months, two years ago, with with FSG about how they were doing things because um, obviously there wasn't much success on the pitch at the time um, but it just shows that in terms of a long-term plan it's it's worked really well in terms of potentially selling a player yeah you know I think I think there's a good chance that a player could go uh, in the, I mean it's really hard to predict what's going to happen with the summer now because of the coronavirus but you know, could could a Salah or Mane be sold potentially? They're both twenty eight in their coming months. Um, they haven't got much longevity left in terms of the careers. Uh, certainly on elite level, um, they'd still attract huge sums now. But you'd imagine twelve months, eighteen months down the line, they wouldn't. So, given that we the, the uh, points that we just touched on there about how Liverpool are run, would they potentially look to cash in in the same way they cashed in on Coutinho? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a real possibility. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think maybe in the summer we've still got a little bit of deadwood that maybe we could cash in on sort of thing. Like I'm thinking like an Origi and you know, like players an, like that. An accumulation of maybe uh, squad players that bring in a little bit of well, a decent yeah. sum in itself, yeah. Yeah, we've I generally just, been quite good at doing that. I hear what you're saying, but just saying in the summer, as I said, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen now because of the virus and we don't know when the season will finish. But let's just imagine it's a traditional summer. If if Real Madrid come in and um, offer £125 million for Mane, would, 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 you not, would you not want to sell? £125 million. Mm. <laughs> It's a lot that like, isn't it? Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. You could get Sancho for that, and Sancho's ten years younger. Yeah, this is this is it. This is what I mean. So, would they just consider um, maybe all losing the player a year uh, before they would have liked to? But in the grand scheme of things, it's probably smarter business. I don't know. 
Hmm. I, just, I, I don't know, I'd be surprised if people actually embraced such a big change in a summer mm. when it's not overly necessary. Um, yeah. I think we'll, I don't know, maybe maybe one more year of sticking before we, we maybe go down the twist route. Mm. Mm. So uh, my question, next question was, what was Alisson's XG against during his run of clean sheets? And what is the XG for a penalty? So Alisson, um, in 15 matches between Brighton in November and Norwich, after the uh, winter break, was expected to concede 9.86 goals, but he actually conceded two. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure how many clean sheets he was in there, but he was a. In fact, obviously, there's 13 then. 13 clean sheets out of 15. That, that would be mm, Yeah. Um, yeah. And the XG for a penalty is. I mean, I'm assuming there'll be some mad models out there that just want to be a little bit alternative. <laughs> the majority of... Name and shame, mate. <laughs> but the, the majority of um, models out there would, would value a penalty as about 0.76 XG, which means that roughly 76% of penalties are scored, basically. Mm. Go ahead. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I was. I wasn't sure if there's anything else in there. Um, I've I've got a question here, which is um, it, it actually starts with a silly question, which normally means it is going to be a silly question. But I I think this one is a little bit of fun. Um, silly question, but we'd love to hear your answers. If you were an elite footballer, what position would you want to play, and what would be your strongest attribute? Now, this is a question to both of us, Josh. Um, yeah, these next few for both of us, aren't they? Yeah. Now, I have to be careful with mine because I know the people that I've played uh, with in teams. So I need to give honest answers only here. But um, yeah, so the position I play now is centre mid. I've played uh, in defence before, but that tended to be when I was quite unfit. But um, yeah, centre mid, I'm, I'm pretty robust, I'd say, in there. Um, decent passer, if I do say so myself. Um, I guess if I was playing, I'd probably want to be maybe like a number eight, um, just because you're, you're all action there, but you're still hopefully scoring and creating goals. Um, so yeah, that's 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 my position at Echo FC anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I think for me, I'll, I'll just go with my position for Echo FC, I suppose. Um, so I would probably be an inside forward on the left. Um, basically Sadio Mane's position. Um, I'm right-footed, so that allows me to cut inside. And um, strongest attributes I probably have to say would be um, probably me touching me and me control, close control. Um, I'm quite good at getting, you know, keeping the ball within my vicinity. And I, when I watch players, that that constantly chasing after the ball because it's never under control. It just does me head in. Um, I think when I was a little kid, obviously constantly in, out in the street with the ball at my feet. Um, so I'm quite good with the ball at my feet. A um, little bit tricky 
and I'd like to throw in there that the first time I ever faced Dave <laughs> with my first touch, I actually nutmegged him. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, one, that one had to go in there. Like. Uh, yeah, I was waiting to see if you dropped that one in there. I uh, <laughs> I didn't sleep for the week. Like, yeah. and I, I said I make a joke because I kind of done one of those. I was not those like kind of uh, passes that went went goes through someone's legs, and I got one of them later, and I was desperately trying to ram home that it was a meg, but <laughs> oh, back on you, sorry, yeah, but I was like, I got home and I thought, I just haven't, I haven't fixed it at all. Like I'm still, I'm still one down here, so uh, yeah, we need to rectify that at some point. We haven't played, we haven't played together for a while, though, have we? No, no, supposed uh, to be playing on the show, aren't we? But uh, yeah, because of this, because of this outbreak. Yeah, well, no, no. I assume it's been cancelled at least. Then again, I'm sure we'd be making each other on the same team in that scenario, would we? <laughs> hopefully not, no. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, I don't know if you want to know, mate. Yeah, yeah, go on. So, yeah. is it difficult to switch off and just enjoy watching a game of football when so much of your job involves analysis of the statistics and data? Uh, good question. I would say... I would say no, it's not it's not difficult to switch off. It's very easy to to still enjoy game and, and appreciate it for the same entertainment value. Um but what I will say is that since going down this route, I'd say I perceive the game differently to to others and the certain things I value on the pitch differently to say for example my dad. When if I ever watched the match with my dad, I'll give you an example. Uh Mo Salah is obviously a player that um divides opinion I'd say a lot. Um I went to match a few weeks ago. Can't remember what the game was, West Ham at home, I think, the three two. Um but it was the first time I actually went out before it for a few for a few drinks and a few drinks after it as well. I really couldn't get my head around just how much the the typical match going fan doesn't really appreciate Salah that much. Um, they seem to focus on his negatives rather than his positives. And my my dad, for example, is has a big focus on how frequently he loses the ball. Now that's that's obviously very understandable. But from my perspective, um, analyzing the numbers and things like that, I appreciate what he's what he's what he's doing there and what he's bringing to the team, taking risks. Um, because you need players ultimately to do that. And he might give the ball away five times, but the one time he doesn't give the ball away, he's managed to get one of his teammates inside the penalty box. Mm-hmm. Hence why at the end of the season, despite him being a frustrating player to watch, he's registered over 20 goals and probably over 10 assists. Such an output mm-hmm. player in that regard. So, still fairly easy to enjoy the game. Um, still very easy to be a fan. But the way I perceive certain actions on the pitch... I think maybe it's safe to say I'm a lot more forgiving in certain moments than than a typical fan. Um, <laughs> annoyingly, it's a very similar answer for me. Um, but we have spoken about this, haven't we? <laughs> um, yeah, it's look, look. The thing is, you you still enjoy the game even with this side of it. You just maybe enjoy it a little bit more. There's another uh, layer to your enjoyment. Um, in terms of watching different, uh, watching out for different things, you know, tactical changes and stuff. But ironically, I was going to say the exact same thing. I actually find conversations about the game in the pub, etc., much harder. Um, and that isn't because, like, you know, our knowledge surpasses everyone. We're great, and, and others aren't. It's just 
bear in mind, obviously, we work within football on a standard week, five days a week, eight, eight hours a day. Then there's the games that you watch on the weekends. Then there's probably work that you're doing in the evenings as well. Like football is just a 24-hour thing for us. Whereas for others, it's a it's a weekend interest. You know, it's uh, sometimes it, they're not even fans of football. Most wouldn't admit this, but you probably know a few people who are listening and watching now. A lot aren't even fans of football. They're just a fan of a specific team. So yeah. the chances are beyond beyond their team. They don't really know much uh, of what's going on across the league or, you know, any other sides across Europe or anything. So, yeah, I, I find it really difficult to have like a an average Joe conversation with someone about football now because, yeah, their takes can often be um, formed on kind of split second moments or narratives can be formed on a basket being given away. But I agree, you know, that they, they won't consider how a player is creative room for themselves and is, is trying to get on the ball and they're trying to progressive ball into the box rather than going backwards or sideways. They'll just see a player receive the ball, try and pass it, intercepted, and they'll go, oh, he's, he's terrible, he's this and that. Um, and at times, I find myself just going along with what people are saying just because I don't want to look like I'm trying to be a, you know, a know-it-all or always got reason behind things. So I'd say definitely... If there's one downside, it is it's difficult to have conversations with, uh, yeah. with people who maybe don't have the same passion. Yeah, no, I'd go along with that. Another player I'd throw in there as well is probably Firmino. I think a lot of and this is this is no digging in like that, but I think a lot of fans would make would make out that they know they, they, they appreciate Firmino and they and they know what he's in what he's in the team to do. Mm. But I think often just from what I see about it, it, it doesn't take a lot for him to do wrong before people are saying we need to get in a proper striker and using traditional shouts like that. Um, yeah. But it's, it, I think you need to think about the game a little bit beyond that. That's my perspective, at least. Um, but yeah, I think that's just that's the difference in, in perception, I suppose, of how you perceive the game. Uh, hang on, this is your one, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll keep up. Um, yeah, another one starts with a nice comment. Thank you. Uh, I love the show, lads, but can you please explain some of the analytical terms you use, like XG? Um, I understand it's expected goals, but how is the number related to the performance? Uh, I Liverpool had an XG of three and United had an XG of one. Uh, the game could have finished 2 0. And then just use a few uh, the clarification for a few other terms used. Um, yeah, well, XG is a, a metrics that's basically trying to. Um, I mean, we just strip it right down and try and put it really basic. Expected goals is there to try and give a better indication of the chances created. So you know, if you if you look ten years ago, where you'd kind of say dominant in the game, would you be looking? Well, how many how many shots did they have? You know, we had the most possession. And XG is trying to, you know, trying to give a better uh, understanding of how that game actually panned out. You know, if a, if a team's had 20 shots, but the XG was only 0.5, then the chances are the locations and qualities of those shots weren't very good. Um, whereas if a side only had four shots, but they had an XG of 1.5 or 2, then they that tells us that they were really, really big chances, probably from really good locations. And, 
had a good chance of leading to a goal. Um, so it's all just about how we get to, you know, interpret the interpret the game and just get a better understanding of how the game actually actually played out. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, but, but I, I don't know if, we're, if you want us to list terms or maybe we can put them for some them somewhere for you. Um, maybe we'll do a small piece and just kind of explain everything that we use. I don't know if there's anything you wanna you wanna add on that, Josh. Yeah, I mean, in terms of XG, I've just wrote down that like you know, it's the general idea in football is to obviously score more than the opposing team. Um, so to score more than the opposing team, you have to generate shots while ideally preventing them from taking shots. Um, and from a from a coaching perspective, at least. You can't be in control of, of everything on the pitch. You can't be in control of refereeing decisions. You can't be in control of luck, um, the influence of the fans and things like that. What you can be responsible for is the performance of the team. And I think what XG does, it offers an insight into which team won the performance by valuing the shots that each team generates. So Liverpool post an XG of 3.1 compares to United, who post an XG of 1.1. Then according to the performance alone, if you remove every other influence from factor, Liverpool deserved a three one win. Uh, obviously things aren't that simple, but that's the general idea behind XG. XG offers an insight into into you know the foundation, which is, in my opinion, the performance of a team. But then all the other influence from factors end up imp- impacting the actual results, such as the referee, good fortune. The individual quality of your players, all things like that. Um, in terms of other um, phrases that we use, I'd say when when we say a team is underperforming, we mean according to their expected numbers, they are below where you'd expect them to be. That that may stem from the quality of their players or, or something like that. Whereas if a, if a team is overperforming or if a player is overperforming, then they're doing beyond what the numbers expect. Um I'm not sure if you can think of any other phrases, Dave, or um, there's things that we, we, we talk about PPDA and that's passes per defensive action. Uh, I mean it's a little bit more detailed than this, but as an overview of a unit that's basically a um, a measurement tool for, for pressing really. Um so if if a side has a low PPDA, the chances are they're quite aggressive in the press. So that's where you'll see teams like City, uh, Liverpool traditionally and stuff. Um, so that's a really good tool if you want to try and measure um, basically how, how aggressive a team presses the ball. Um, yeah, any other example? Obviously, expected assists work in the same way that expected goals work. But um, the, the key yeah. difference is, this is probably a good one to flag, actually. The key difference is, Expected assists aren't reliant on the um, on the person who ultimately takes the shot, so it upsides the value irrespective of if that pass leads to a goal or not. So we'd probably recommend to anyone that if you have access to the data, maybe always try and look at a player's expected assists numbers as opposed to their actual assists because. Yeah, you know, a, a player may may only have two or three assists for a campaign, but if they have a combined expected assists of around ten. That straight away says to us, this play is very creative and he's probably been let down by um, forward players and their finishing abilities. Yeah, 
and you know a little example on that say for example if you support um mesotosal in crystal palace's team and he was creating chances week after week christian benteke maybe by the end of the season you've got about minus three assists now <laughs> 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 so by the end of the season maybe you'll have about two assists whereas if you were to put mesotosal in city's team maybe he'd have about 10 assists by roughly the same chances he's creating just simply because of the finishing quality of Aguero compared to Benteke. So generally expected assists provide a better insight for you as opposed to looking at outcomes like assists. Um, yeah. Do we have any more? Um, I'm trying to think of... Hmm. So I've got, I've got another question here. Uh, so how can i develop my understanding of football analytics and tactics love the pod struggling to find a course to more so my advice on this would just would just i suppose be the advice that i gave myself a a while back and that's just basically read and listen to as you can basically um I just try to follow as many people as I possibly can that are already in the field, read all their stuff. Um and I, I found that before you know it, you more you know more than than the average than the man on the street, basically. To the extent that you may be able to filter your knowledge down and start educating them. But I think generally, um official courses, football still seems a little bit too niche for official courses to be about. I think we we did a 10 one, didn't we? But that was, I think that was more to gauge an understanding of where we are currently at with it. Uh, I, I felt personally that I, I could have taught the course. Um, and that, that, that was, that's without me ever taking a course myself. That's just through, I suppose I'm self-taught. I suppose if it's self-taught, but I wouldn't really say the course, I think you can you genu- genuinely teach yourself this sort of thing, providing you're interested enough in it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, there's, there's, there's very little in the way of courses. Um, actually, I thought you wouldn't find a course, but I forgot that we did go to go to that last year. But yeah, that was uh, yeah, it, it was very basic. Um, I can only really echo what what you said, Josh. You know, read up on analytical content. There's tons out there. You know, read read our stuff. That's pretty much all our work is that kind of work. Um, you know, there's there's, there's other sites out there. And without me naming them, you can find them fairly easily. Um, get to grips with some of the free websites that kind of provide this data. You know, so the things like Understat, uh, FB Ref and stuff, just, you know, all, all those sites where you can get a hold of that data and just start playing with it, start getting accustomed to it. If you read things and you don't understand what something means, you know, you've got the best search engine ever invented in Google. Just put it in there and have a read of what it means. Just develop your understanding. And as Josh said, very, very quickly, you start grasping things. Um, you know, you'll, you'll learn things from others on Twitter. You'll see things. And you, as, long as, you, as long as you're committed to actually, it, it is a genuine interest. And it's not just something that you've seen that seems a bit cool. And you're interested for a week or two and then it drifts again if you genuinely are interested just read up as much as you can you'll find within a few months you'd already have a really good understanding of things yeah spot on um and i'll just have to go have, have to go back to 
the still questions because I, I forgot one of mine. Um, so I got asked, my question would be, are we signing new players due to the fact the opposition and our working goes out? Um, I think for me, it's important. It's a bit of an age-old cliche, I suppose, but it's important not to stand still in football. I think you have to keep evolving. Um, and ultimately, the players that you've got give you solutions and new, new solutions and new tools to work with and things like that. Liverpool play the way they play right now because of the players Klopp has at his disposal. Um, if he was to get Timo Werner, if he was to get Kai Havertz, you know, Lionel Messi, these players would alter, probably. Not necessarily the principles of Liverpool's game. The pressure would always be there. The intensity would always be there. But in terms of the tactical formation, in terms of where Liverpool attack, stuff like that, where Liverpool defend and things, maybe those would adjust based on players. So, um, I don't think we're signing players because we're getting figured out. But I think we're maybe in a bit proactive in that regard so that Klopp um, is able to keep Liverpool unpredictable, basically. I think Liverpool under Klopp have smashed the whole concept of being hard to predict, being hard to analyse because we we throw so much at you with set pieces and throw-ins. You said a couple of weeks ago, didn't you, Dave, about the variation in Liverpool's corners? Yeah. yeah. Um, that, kind, that kind of thing is very, very hard to analyse. So the more solutions you have, basically, the harder you are to face. Hence why Liverpool may be looking in the summer for a few alternatives to what we've currently got. Um, but yeah, those were, those were the questions that we got in. So if we haven't answered yours then either yours formed, formed part of one of the others or you maybe have submitted a bit too late. Uh, but thanks for sending them in, some good ones in there, weren't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed that. Um, they're good to do every so often, the Q&As. Yeah. Questions are getting better with time, I find. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we'll be able to do six weeks of them until the football starts again. <laughs> so we'll, we will be a little bit more inventive in the coming weeks, but no, I enjoyed that. Yeah, we're, we're potentially looking at doing an analyse in Anfield whereby we analyse an older game. Um, not necessarily the 80s or anything like that, but maybe the 20th century, so, that sort of thing. Uh, so, I don't know, if you've got any requests of certain matches, send them over. Um, we'll see where we go with that, but we should be back next week. So, thanks for joining us, Dave. Cheers, mate. Make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, I will. I'll. Uh, and, uh, I was going to say, I, have you ever seen Castaway? I expect the pair of us to start each week just growing the really long beard and long hair and, you know, <laughs> just losing our yeah. mind a little bit, but we'll see how we get on. Yeah, well, I, I went to shop before and it was like a scene out of I Am Legend. <laughs> I had the gun in one hand. Yeah, thanks for tuning in anyway, and we will be back next week. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.